Take a Bible out, find the book of 1 John. You can also take your bulletin, maybe that you picked up on the way in. There's some notes. You can follow along with what we're going to talk about. This is week three in the book of 1 John. When you think about how this book is laid out, Bible scholars debate the structure a lot. And no one really tends to agree on an overall structure for the book. It is pretty clear that chapter 1 is largely introductory in nature. It's just sort of big ideas set before us. And when you move to chapter 2, these introductory big theological ideas become very personal. And you see that in the first phrase, 1 John 2 verse 1, my little children. John regularly uses terms of endearment to refer to his readers. He uses terms like my little children, beloved, children. He's using these terms of affection, and it gives you some insight into the heart that he has for these people. And it's important to remember, when you and I work our way through 1 John, there's some stuff in here that is very bold, is very much in your face, is very much, you might even say, confrontational. And it's important to remember the tone that John is speaking with or writing with is not angry. He's not barking at us. He's not shouting at us. He's writing to his little children, to his beloved, to people that he cares about. You've had the experience and I've had the experience of sending a text or an email and somebody reads tone into it that maybe you didn't intend or maybe you've done that to someone else. You got a text message from somebody and you thought, oh my goodness, they're really angry with me and maybe they weren't at all. And so it's worth noting when we read through this book, this book that says some very hard things, it's worth remembering that they're not necessarily spoken to us with a harsh tone. Rather, it's more like a grandfather speaking to his grandkids. And he starts off in chapter 2 talking to his little children. Now, let's talk about the content of this paragraph, chapter 2, 1 to 6. I just want to throw an idea out there that's going to govern what we say this morning. The New Testament, the Bible for that matter, never tells us that God's grace gives us permission to sin. You will not find that idea anywhere in the Bible. You probably won't find a lot of people who openly say that, but you'll find an awful lot of people who live as if that were true. The Bible never gives us permission to sin simply because God has been gracious to us. Paul brings this question up in Romans 6. He says, should we just keep sinning so that God has more and more opportunities to show us grace? And he basically says, that's ridiculous. Absolutely not. In the book of Jude, Jude warns about false teachers and he says, there will be false teachers that creep into your midst and they will take the mercy of God and the grace of God and the patience of God and twist it, pervert it, into an excuse for sensuality. God's grace never leads to more sin. God's grace always leads to sanctification. John wanted his readers to mortify sin. That's an old theological word that means kill. Mortify your sin. You think about somebody who has died, we send them to the mortician. They deal with dead people. John's saying, 
I want you to mortify sin. I want you to kill it. I don't want it to be something that continues in your life just because God has forgiven you in Christ. Now, I almost made that this week as I was working on my outline. I almost made that the big idea. In fact, in round one, version one of this sermon, that was the big idea. And the more I looked at the text, the more I realized that's not the biggest idea in the passage. It's part of what he's saying, but that idea that we're supposed to kill sin moves to a bigger idea, and this is it. We know that we are in Christ if we keep his commandments. That's the big idea of the section of 1 John that we're looking at. We know that we are in Christ if we keep his commandments. You'll find this word know, K-N-O-W, four times in this passage. You'll find the idea that we are in him, in Jesus, in Christ, four times in this passage. You'll find the verb to keep, as in keeping his commandments. You'll find that word keep three times, and you'll see the idea of keeping the commandments several other times. We know that we're in Christ if we keep his commandments. This is a a section of 1 John that is dealing with the assurance of our salvation, the certainty of our salvation. So take your copy of God's word, and let's just read our passage, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless the reading and the study of your word. Father, we find things in the book of 1 John that are challenging. Um, They make us stop and think. They make us wrestle with our lives and our relationship with you. And Father, we want to dig into what John is saying, and we want your word to dig into our hearts. Father, we want your word to be active in our our lives this morning, and we want your word to be the standard by which we measure our lives and our spiritual health. Father, give us insight, give us wisdom this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. At some point in your life, you've probably found yourself watching a legal drama on TV. The first legal drama, just to use that category broadly, that I remember watching as a kid is Matlock. Any Matlock fans? Andy Griffith played Ben Matlock. I don't know that the legal drama has improved since Matlock. I think this was the peak, and it's all been downhill from there. He wore cheap suits, and he drove a junkie Crown Victoria, and he liked to eat hot dogs, and he always defended 
the innocent. It's a great legal drama. And this idea of a, a legal show, a, a show about lawyers, has been reproduced and recreated millions and millions and millions of times. I mean, over and over, they make these shows. Sometimes the focus, like in Matlock, is on the defense attorney. Sometimes the focus in other shows is on the prosecution. Sometimes the focus is on not the drama aspect, but maybe a comedic aspect related to a a legal show. Sometimes our legal shows that we watch are more based in reality than scripted and and planned out. So you've got all these legal dramas out there. You'll find them on TV. You'll find them in the movie theaters. You'll find them in documentaries. You can download podcasts about this sort of thing. It's almost like when you look at the prevalence of these legal drama type shows, it's almost like the human heart is hardwired to be interested in the courtroom. There's something about the drama that takes place inside the courtroom that's captivating to us and we want to watch it whether it's scripted or reality whether it's serious or funny whether we're rooting for the defense or we're rooting for the prosecution there's something about that setting that appeals to us as human beings one of my favorite preachers John MacArthur picks up on this idea that we're interested in the courtroom and he says this he says infinitely transcending such trifles and by trifles he means our human fascination with the courtroom. He says there's a cosmic courtroom that dwarfs all trials, all human trials in scope and severity. God the Father is the judge, Satan is the accuser, and every person who ever lived is on trial. The issue is how unjust sinners can be justified before a holy God. But all is not hopeless for the guilty. Because there is one more character to consider in this divine courtroom scene, the Lord Jesus Christ. He acts as the advocate or defense attorney for all those who believe savingly in him. That idea of a cosmic courtroom sets the stage nicely for what we're talking about here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. And I want to begin by just laying out a few things that John knew, things that John knew, things that he understood that he wanted us to know and he wanted us to understand. John knew that all have sinned. We talked about that if you tracked with us last week, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. All have sinned. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar because he has said that all have sinned. He knew that we had sinned, he knew that Christians struggle with sin, and he knew that we needed Jesus. And what you see in these first couple of verses in chapter 2 is John describing Jesus and how he's the answer to our greatest problem. John believed that God was holy, 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 and he knew that we were sinful people, and he knew that's a problem. How are sinful people going to have a relationship with the holy God? He presents Jesus as the answer, and he says some interesting things about Jesus. First of all, he says Jesus is our paraclete. We're going to use the the English transliteration, paraclete. He's our paraclete. Your version, and I'm reading out of the ESV, most English versions in verse 1 use the word advocate. 
The Greek word is parakletos, and you could transliterate it. You could just sort of morph it into English as the paraclete. Did you know in the Bible, John is the only biblical writer who uses this noun? the parakletos, the paraclete. He uses it four times in the Gospel of John to talk about the Holy Spirit. He quotes Jesus the night before he's betrayed, and Jesus is saying, I'm going away, but I'm going to send you another helper, another advocate, the Holy Spirit. And he calls him the paraclete. Here in 1 John, he uses the word one more time, and it refers to Jesus. Jesus is our paraclete. Why is that good news? In the ancient world, A paraclete was somebody who would stand by your side in your greatest moment of need or difficulty. John MacArthur used the idea of a defense attorney, and that kind of gets close. The breakdown with that idea of thinking about a defense attorney is usually someone is paying the defense attorney to stand by your side, either you or the state. They're usually not just there out of the goodness of their own heart. That's their profession. And they're being compensated for it. A paraclete is not there just for the paycheck. But they are there with you in the moment of your greatest need. And John is saying, here's your greatest need. You're a sinful person standing before a holy judge. You have a problem. But the good news is, you have someone standing right there with you. Someone who will stay close to you. And will not abandon you in your moment of need. He goes on to say that Jesus is the righteous one. I just want you to think about this for a minute. We have an advocate. We have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In his life on the earth, Jesus always did what was right. He always fulfilled righteousness. He always did the things he should have done, and he didn't do the things that he should not have done. Perfect righteousness lived out. That righteousness, you understand, continues now. Jesus is still alive. He's ascended to heaven. He's in the presence of the Father, and even right now, he is the righteous one, which means he will never ask the Father to compromise justice. He will never ask the judge to do something crooked or shady or questionable or immoral. He will not ask someone else to act unrighteously. He's the righteous one. And you say, well, that kind of doesn't give me a lot of hope. Because if you're telling me that God the Father is holy and you're telling me I'm a sinner and you say, good news, you have an advocate, a paraclete, And he's not going to ask the judge to do something immoral or wicked or shady. That's a problem. And that's what I'm telling you. Jesus Christ, your paraclete, will not ask the father, the judge, to compromise on justice. He's not like a defense attorney that you might find with a big ad in the the yellow pages or with a great uh, Google ad when you search in, seedy defense lawyer, somebody that would compromise on the rules and take a shortcut here and twist the facts there. That's not who he is. He's the righteous one. He's not a prosecutor who works unjustly behind the scenes to cut some corrupt deal 
with the people that he has influence with. He's the righteous one. He's our paraclete. He's the righteous one. Thirdly, this is where it gets good. He provided propitiation. That's what John says in verse 2. He's the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, sometimes English translations say it's an atoning sacrifice. He made an atoning sacrifice. Literally what it means in the Greek is he satisfied the anger of the Father. And he did that at the cross. In his death on the cross, God's anger towards our sin was poured out on God the Son fully, completely, all of it. The Bible uses this imagery of Jesus drinking a cup, the cup of God's wrath. He drank all of it. He didn't leave any in the bottom. At the end of his time on the cross, Jesus with a loud voice said, it's finished. I've taken it all. And John says something remarkable in verse 2. He says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. A remarkable thought. John doesn't want us to be confused. He wants us to understand that Jesus made this propitiation for all people without distinction. The Jews needed to hear that because the Jews had this mindset that the God of Israel was only concerned with people who had Hebrew DNA. And John says that's not the case. This is not just an ethnic thing that he's done. The Gentiles also needed to hear this because the Gentiles had this idea that their deities, their gods and their goddesses basically worked in zip codes. This is their territory. This is where they have sway. This is where they have power. This is where they have influence. And if you go out of that zip code, you're now in the jurisdiction of somebody else, of a different deity. And John's saying it really doesn't work that way. There is one paraclete. He's the righteous one. He made propitiation for the sins of the entire world, for all people without distinction. The Jews needed to hear it. The Gentiles needed to hear it. He's the one who stands beside you. Our friend Danny Aiken, I think, is helpful. He describes it like this. He says, Jesus Christ, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's holiness and turned away his righteous wrath from sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. The hell that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by by Jesus. Can you picture the scene that John's describing that he's laying out for you? It's a courtroom scene. On the bench, God the Father. On trial, you and me. The prosecutor, Satan, the accuser. And the one who stands beside us, not simply because we pay him a retainer fee, but the one who came to stand beside us because he loved us when we were unlovable, Jesus Christ, our paraclete. And not for a second will he ask the Father to simply turn a blind eye towards sin. He's the righteous one. But he will certainly remind the Father, for these people that I stand with, I have made propitiation. Their debt has been paid. They've been cleansed by my blood. 
the wrath that you should have poured out on them has been poured out on me. He's the one who stands beside us. John knew this, and he wanted to make sure his readers knew it. He wanted them to have assurance of salvation, not because of anything that we would do, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If your assurance of salvation is rooted in who you are, it will always fluctuate and come and go and you'll have good days and bad days and you'll never be quite sure. But if it's rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished, then you know that you have salvation. And that's what John wanted for his readers. John wanted his readers to be certain about their relationship with Jesus. This brings us to the big overarching purpose of the, of the passage. He wants us to have certainty. Look what he says in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And as soon as he says it, the theologian in him comes out and the pastor in him comes out and he says, okay, I know, I know you've sinned and I know you're going to keep sinning. So let me talk to you about Jesus. And he talks to us about Jesus and he picks up in verse 3. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. Verse 3. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's make a few observations about these verses as we wrap up. Number one, Obedience to God's commands is not the same as legalism. And sometimes today in 2020, people tell you that those two things are the same. That if you expect people to obey God's commands, you must be some kind of Pharisee. You must be some kind of legalist. Well, you just think it's all up to you to earn your way with God. That's not what John is saying at all, is it? He is certainly calling us to obey. And he says, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. But the same John who said that also said this, John 3.16, you may have heard of it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John understood how a person is saved. It's through faith in Jesus. It's by believing in Jesus. That's why he wrote the Gospel of John, John 20, 31, that we've talked about so many times. Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John believed in salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And at the same time, he looks you and I in the eye and he says, I don't want you to sin. He's not asking us to earn our salvation. He understands that this issue of sin and obedience is tied to our assurance. So obedience to God's commands is not legalism. Secondly, his primary aim was assurance of salvation, not salvation itself. When you look at verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, Bible scholars call this the ethical test, the moral test. The obedience test. And John, throughout this book, is going to lay all these tests before us. I know you thought we were coming to the end of the school year. Summer break was here. But it's test time this summer. We're taking tests. 
And he lays them all out. And here's the first one. It's the obedience test. Verse 3. This is how we know that we come to know him. It's not how we come to know him. It's how we know and have certainty that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4 says it negatively. If you say that you know him and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. It's just, he just kind of lays it out there. He's not pulling any punches. You can say whatever you want to say about your relationship with Jesus. But if you don't pass this test, John says you're a liar. Verse 5, if you keep his word, the love of God is perfected. We're going to come back to that idea. Verse 6, if you say that you abide in him, you ought to walk. There's our word walk in the same way in which he walked. Your walk, if you know him, ought to line up with the way that he walked. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk like Jesus? It doesn't mean we mimic his stride or try to recreate his wardrobe. It doesn't mean that we all have to move to Israel and hang out with fishermen, cast out demons, and heal the sick. It doesn't mean that at the end of our lives we're going to die as some sort of propitiation or sacrifice for the sins of the world or anyone else. If our walk lines up with his walk, it does mean that we are going to honor God and love others. Your walk ought to line up with the way that he walked. That is, if you know him, your lives should line up. He's not talking about perfect, complete, total obedience. He's talking about the overall pattern and the overall direction of your life. Is it moving in the same direction that Jesus has moved? There's a lot of great stories told from the life of John Newton. He was a slave trader. He had a dramatic conversion. He became a follower of Jesus. He became a hymn writer. He became a preacher. He became a a political activist in some sense. And I think this quote sums up nicely what John the Apostle is saying. Newton said, this is after salvation. I'm not what I ought to be. Right? He understood 1 John 1.8. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in us. He looked at himself and he said, I am not what I ought to be. But I'm not what I once was. The direction of my life has changed. Jesus has done something miraculous in me and through me, and my walk is now moving in a new direction. And it's not anything that he took credit for. He said, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Usually people just quote that last phrase, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am, and they quote it to sort of say, yeah, you know, this this is me, this is what you get, the good, the bad, the ugly. And we just sort of use that quote to excuse our mess in our lives. Newton started the whole quote saying, look, I know that I'm not where I ought to be. I also know that I'm not where I used to be. Jesus has done something in me. He's essentially talking about this obedience test from chapter 2. It's not the only test that you have to pass to have assurance of salvation, but it's one of them. It's one of the tests. One last thought from verse 5, and we'll mention this quickly. There's a connection between our obedience and our love for God. Verse 5 is a fascinating verse 
says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In the Greek, that genitive case of talking about the love of God could refer to one of two things. It could refer to the love that God has for us, right? If you keep his commandments, the love that God has for you is then perfected. It can also, and I think more likely, refer to the love that we have for God, right? Like I have a love of basketball. Basketball doesn't care about me, but I care about it. And John could be saying, when you keep his commandments, the love that you have for God will be perfected. And you've got to say, well, which one is he talking about? I certainly don't think he's saying that the more you obey, the more God loves you. Look, when you were a sinner, he loved you. And he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for your sins. He's not waiting for you to be a really, really good person so that he can love you more. What John is saying is the more you commit yourselves to keeping his commandments, trusting in Jesus is the propitiation for your sins, you will find yourself loving God more and more and more. The feelings that you have for God and the gospel will continue to grow and continue to increase. I want you to understand that none of this was theory for John. None of it. It was all lived out real life experience. You know, when we first meet John in the pages of the Bible, he's not an apostle yet. He's a fisherman, and he's a bit of a hothead. He throws grown-up temper tantrums. I don't know, we think of Peter as kind of hot-headed and run his mouth, ran his mouth a lot. John was a hothead, legitimate. There was a point even after John met Jesus that they were walking along. Jesus preached in a village. Nobody listened. They essentially ran Jesus out of town. And John's prescription for that city was, Jesus, do you want me and my brother James to tag team this thing and call down fire and blow those people to smithereens? Now, we, we read that and we kind of laugh and Jesus gave him a nickname, Son of Thunder. I just want you to think about what he's saying. Like, genuinely think about it. They walk out of this village. John looks back and he says, do you want me to murder those people? He was so angry. He was so offended. His ego was wounded so badly. He's a man who wrestled with sin, who at times was consumed by sin. He had a sin problem. He also had a paraclete. He had somebody who came to stand by him in his moment of need. He walked next to the righteous one. Walked with him. He watched him. He listened to him. He learned from him. He trusted that Jesus was the propitiation for his sins. And he came to the point in his life where he agreed with God about his sins. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't try to justify it. He didn't try to make it sound better than it was. He just confessed it. That's what we talked about last week, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God about our sins, he's faithful and just. He forgives us our sin debt, and his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. John experienced that. He knew that. 
And he understood that the more I commit to walking like Jesus, the more I commit my life to obeying Jesus, not because I'm trying to earn anything with him. He's given me freely grace and mercy, and I receive it by believing. But the more I commit to obeying Jesus and walking like Jesus, the more I find myself loving God and and wanting to honor God and caring about his people. And so the hothead who wanted to blow up a village later in life writes a letter, and he doesn't write it and say, hey, you knuckleheads, listen up. He says, listen, my little children, care about you. I love you. And I know Jesus, and I know that I know Jesus. And he wants you to know Jesus, and he wants you to know that you know Jesus. He's writing so that we would not sin, and he understands there's a connection between this issue of obedience and our assurity of salvation.